Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, feminist self-help for everyone. Brought to you by the School of New Feminist Thought. I'm your host, Kara Lowenthal, Harvard lawyer turned life coach extraordinaire, and I'm here to help you get society's sexist messages out of your brain so you can be confident, feel powerful, and live a life you won't regret when you die. If you want to jumpstart that process, you need to grab my totally free guide to feeling less anxious and more empowered by rewiring your brain. Just text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four and use code word brain or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash brain. Now let's get to today's episode. Okay, y'all, today's interview conversation is like one of my favorites I've ever done because the topic we're going to be talking about, which is when you and your partner are at kind of different speeds in your relationship, something that my guest Dr. Solomon calls a pace discrepancy, is like a complete, <laughs> I think we called it a node in the episode, but you could also just fall, call it a complete clusterfuck of like social programming, social expectations, socialized anxiety, what women are taught is their worth and purpose and value in the world bad pop psychology. It's just like, it's so good. It's such a rich, rich area. It reminds me of like my life in academia where you would pick kind of one somewhat small thing and then you can just like extrapolate everything from it and see a microcosm of the world in it. So it's such a good conversation. And Dr. Solomon is just wise and hilarious and a wonderful person to be in conversation with. I did an episode on her podcast all about the book. That was also amazing. So excited for you to listen to this. One of the things we talk about in the episode is the ways in which the anxiety that society teaches women about their relationship status contributes to so much conflict in relationships where if you are dealing with especially a hetero cis kind of normative relationship where you've got a man and a woman and they're partnered and they're sort of progressing up some kind of relationship escalator towards, you know, monogamy and then cohabitation and then marriage and then children, like if they're on that kind of socially sanctioned journey, there's so much anxiety that women have about whether the relationship is going to work out, whether it's going to escalate to the point that they want it to, about getting married by a certain time, about having kids by a certain time, about you know what it means about them if they aren't hitting certain milestones or timelines. And all of that anxiety creates a lot of the tension within couples that have the so-called pace discrepancy. I don't mean so-called like it doesn't exist. I just mean term coined by Dr. Solomon inside this pace discrepancy. And obviously, it doesn't only come up in that context. People of any gender in any relationship orientation, any sexual orientation can have pace discrepancies. But I do think that one of the reasons we see it come up disproportionately in a certain format is because of all of the socialization and the social conditioning that women get that they should be focused on finding a husband and having children and getting married and like following this very specific path. And if that if it's not happening on a certain timeline, there's something wrong with them. Or if their partner isn't ready and willing and excited to move to each stage immediately, there's something wrong with them too. So it's such a potent form of socially programmed anxiety right? Which is the anxiety that we have because of the way society has taught us to think about ourselves. Before we dive into the interview, I want to tell you about another opportunity to kind of dig deeper into some of 
the issues that we talk about in this podcast, in this episode. One of the things that creates so much anxiety for the faster moving partner in a relationship with a pace discrepancy when they are a hetero woman or a a woman in a hetero partnership, let's say, whether or not the woman is heterosexual, a woman dating a man who is on that relationship escalator and has a lot of anxiety around the pace discrepancy. One of the causes of that is obviously the socialization that women get around their worth, their value, and the necessity of being in a certain kind of relationship. And that desire makes a lot of women feel really disempowered in dating and in romantic relationships because they feel this urgency that especially, not only, but especially in these kind of hetero partnerships that their partner may not feel. Their partner, right, the way men are socialized may not feel and likely doesn't feel the same level of urgency biologically or socially around progressing through this relationship escalator to marriage and family life. And that kind of disempowerment is symptomatic of the many ways that society teaches women to feel disempowered, right? To believe that our outcomes, our happiness, our fulfillment, our success are in other people's hands, and that we are dependent on other people's approval and acceptance and choice of us in order to give us value or validate our worth or allow us to achieve what we want. And I think this is one of the most insidious ways that society fucks with our heads. And so I am really, really committed to teaching women how to take back their power. And I use the word power specifically because lots of people talk about women's empowerment. It's like women are supposed to want to feel empowered, which is just this sort of like nice little phrase that somehow sounds like, okay, you're going to feel like a little better about yourself, but certainly it'll just be confined to you. Men are not taught to feel empowered. Men are taught to feel powerful, like they can show up and do things in the world and make things happen, right? So I want women to claim their power, not just their empowerment, but like their power, their power in their in the world, the power to take up space and make things happen in their own lives that impacts the wider world. And so that is why I'm teaching the Take Back Your Power training. It is a four-day training where we will get together live every day. I'm going to teach you to take back your power from self-doubt, take back your power from perfectionism, right? Not letting perfectionism sap your power, not letting self-doubt sap your power, and take back your power from people-pleasing, not letting your worries about everyone else drain your power out of you as well. So I'm going to be teaching each day. I'm going to coach live. I'm going to answer questions. We're going to have bonus coaching calls for those of you who are already in the Feminist Self-Help Society. We'll have bonus coaching calls in the evenings during the training. It's going to be a really powerful, dare I say it, week that we are going to spend together. And by the end of it, you are going to feel and think differently about yourself and your kind of capacity and ability to make moves in this world and make things happen for yourself. And that is the true empowerment. So if you want to join us, two easy ways to do that. You can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash power, or you can text your email address to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four, and the code word is power. So that's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. 
and the code word is power or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash power. I cannot wait to dig into this with you and really teach you how to change your brain in just four short days to feel more powerful in your own life and in the world. Let's go. Hello, my friends. So I am here today with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, and I'm so excited about this that I started like ranting about why I'm so excited about it before we even started recording. And then I was like, oh, I got to save this. So we're going to have such a good, juicy conversation today. I've already spoken to Dr. Solomon on her podcast about the book, so I already know this is going to be great. And we're going to be talking about like the central node in relationships where like bad pop psychology and gender socialization and so many other like little threads combine. So this is going to be amazing if you are a person who's in a relationship with another person of any kind. But I would love for Dr. Solomon first, tell us a little about yourself, your bestselling author, you're a therapist, among many other things. Tell us kind of your brief resume, but also like how did you get sort of interested in and focused on relationships as your area mm-hmm. of expertise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so it's so lovely to be back with you again. Thank you for having me in your space. Yeah. I've been doing this work for over 20 years. So I'm trained as a licensed clinical psychologist and grew up as a girl who loved, I mean, I loved watching Oprah Winfrey. I would come home from school, <laughs> watch Oprah all through college. And so I think I've always been fascinated by the world of relationships. I read a ton of romance novels growing up. I was always like sort of reading fictional stories about love and, you know, the tragedies of love. But when I went to college, I really thought that I needed to become a medical doctor. Like that was sort of my track was like, I'm smart, therefore I must be a medical doctor. And I took a women's studies class in college and it just like blew me wide open. Like I was like, oh, I'm home. Like this is my place. These are my people. I was so captivated by being able to study how the big systems converge in our interior, in the space between us and family systems. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do with all of this? And so this field of psychology, specifically this field of couples therapy and the study of relationships has just been perfect for me and has kept me really captivated for you know many, many years. And so I spend some time in academia teaching. I do an undergrad relationship education class at Northwestern called Marriage 101. And and I spend some of my time working as a therapist, working with individuals and primarily couples at all different stages. And then I spend a lot of time translating all of what we know from therapy offices and research labs and the, you know, ivory tower and translating that into tools that people can really use in there as similar to you. It's an exciting time to be you know, a translator. And so I do that on my podcasts and in my books and on social media. And so that that's sort of what you were calling the central node of pop psychology and relationships really is where I like to be and help people. What I always say is like thicken the narrative. You know, I think we we have these very linear, thin stories about love and that does us dirty in all kinds of ways. And so my my main mission in life is to help people kind of grow their capacity to hold on to the complexities that really our relationships demand that we be able to hold. Yeah, I love that. I think of it as like thickening is such a good word. I think of it as like sort of, it's like a richness is missing or like the shading is missing, right? It's like people want to, are doing like an outline in Sharpie and it's just like a stick figure. You're like, okay, but there's so much more there. So I'm really excited to talk about this. So we're going to talk about something specific, but I think that it like encapsulate so much of what we're talking about. So you write and teach about something you call 
pace discrepancies in a relationship and how people navigate those. And I think it's like, it's just like a beautiful example of so many different threads of what we want to talk about. So can we start at like the 101? Can you define what is a pace discrepancy to people? Because I don't think people know that term, but once they hear it, every human who's been in a relationship pretty much has like been on one side or the other of this. Yes. Yeah. Well, people don't know that term because I coined the term as a psychologist like to do, but I did it for very- Unless they've read read from you. That's right. That's right. That's right. The reason I called it a pace discrepancy is very specific. So what is a pace discrepancy? A pace discrepancy is when partners in a couple are not ready at the same moment for the next stage of the commitment sequence. So it represents a kind of disparity in what I'm ready for and what I'm wanting and what you're ready for and what you're wanting. And what was really, really important for me in order to open up this topic of conversation was I wanted to give this thing a relational name. It's a pace discrepancy. And the very first thing that happens with that is it's an invitation and in fact, a challenge to drop the finger pointing. Because what happens in the space between what I want and what you want is that space becomes really ripe for a massive game of blame slash shame, right? You're not ready for what I want. Therefore, you have an avoidant attachment disorder. You want more than what I have to offer. Therefore, you're needy, clingy, demanding, anxiously attached. Or, you know, why do I want more? Or, am I commitment phobic, right? So it's like these labels get going really quickly and people are trying to identify the source of the problem. But the name itself is the first attempt to say, let's find a space beyond whose fault this is. And so by calling it a pace discrepancy, that's like the gateway to something a little thicker or richer than it's my fault or your fault. Right. Less stigmatizing. So just like kind of flesh out some examples for people, this might be, it sounds like, you know, one person wants to move in together and the other person doesn't, or one person wants to be exclusive and the other person doesn't. Or, I mean, you talked about it as sort of like a commitment path, but I can also imagine this happening in less conventional relationship structures of like, one person wants to open up the relationship and the other person doesn't feel ready. Or one person wants to like, you know, go from being, okay, you're we're allowed to have one night stands. So like, no, I want to have an, an additional romantic relationship and the other person isn't ready. So, just to kind of broaden for everybody listening, it's like it probably numbers wise comes up more on the escalator. But it, I think this concept you're talking about, of course, could apply in whatever direction kind of your relationship is going. That's right. I'm glad that you highlighted that because I think that even calling it a commitment sequence, like there's a way in which we have to dip in and then stretch. So I think I'll use the term commitment sequence, even as I know darn well that when I'm working with a pace discrepancy, a couple with a pace discrepancy, part of it is highlighting this idea that there is a sequence. Okay. And where did your sequence come from? What are the cultural ideas? What are the family ideas? Whose voice is that? So you're exactly right. The moment we start using sequence or elevator, what we're doing is bringing forward that idea that there's a linearity to it, there's a properness to it, and even that needs to be discussed, right? Because the thing with sequences is they oftentimes, we we just have so many assumptions that that is like the capital T truth or the capital R right way of doing it. So yes, absolutely to everything that you said. Yeah. And I love that point that like, it's like one of the opportunities that gets missed in a lot of conventional monogamy is like people don't discuss what different words mean because it's just assumed that it all means the same thing to everybody. Whereas actually people have totally different definitions of even like 
what does being monogamous mean, right? Like some people think it's fine to flirt and some people think you're not even supposed to have a friend of a different gender, right? right. Or of your, whatever gender you're the attracted gender. to. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear some examples of sort of one group of problem is like, okay, people agree on the sequence, but they're just not at the same stage of it. But then another class of problems like, we're not working on the same sequence framework. Like my sequence is totally different from yours. Can you give us kind of an example of that? Like, I think the first one's easier to imagine, you know, I want to get engaged and I'm not ready. What do you see come up where people like maybe because of their cultural background or their age or their gender socialization or whatever are actually like on different sequences or don't even have agreement on that? Yeah. And I think you're right. I do think that one is, you know, hard. I mean, I think it's, I always want to be careful about like hard or easier, but at least I think you're right. In the first scenario, people are kind of similarly situated and they're looking, they're looking in the same direction. Where in the second scenario, I think the second scenario can feel scarier because it's harder to find where that foot on solid ground is, right? If if I'm really clear that I want marriage and you're not clear you want marriage, it can feel like, oh my gosh, are we even, do we even want the same thing? And so then the conversation has to be wider and broader. And that's and that's a hard ask for people to kind of like work with their anxiety or their self-critical narrative. Like, how did I get myself into the spot that I've gotten this far along with somebody who isn't even sure about marriage? Like we've got to kind of hold that self-critical part. We've got to hold that anxious part so that that person can even ask the question of like, okay, so if you're not even sure about marriage, what does like formalization of commitment look like? Or what is it about marriage that you aren't sure about? Because so often the one I would call like the faster paced partner. So often what the faster paced partner is doing is it feels so deeply personal. It is that you don't want to marry me. You are rejecting me. You are unsure about me. And it's really hard to ask the self-critical part and the anxious part to be quiet enough to even understand for that quote unquote slower paced partner what it actually is about marriage that is feeling questionable or sketchy or ill-advised. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you see kind of socialization impacting people's desired pace? Because I have to imagine that maybe I'm wrong, but if you ask me to guess, I would guess that the faster paced partner more usually is the person socialized as a woman who usually has more anxiety about getting to certain commitment stages because of socialization. But I'm curious what you observe in your practice. Yeah, I definitely have had when I work with cis hetero couples, I definitely have had it go in both directions. But you're right. I do think that the way patriarchy socializes men and women, it is more likely to be the case that I think when she's more ready than he is, she can start to get really deeply afraid that she, or or deeply ambivalent inside of her own head. Part of her is like, why do I even want or need this. I'm a feminist. I shouldn't need these right, things. Right, the brain gap that I talk about in the book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then another part of her is really actually deeply afraid that she is, you know, quote unquote, wasting time. Right, and there is like that, like edge, that challenge around biology, the realities of biology, or the you know the the sort of like it creates actual urgency you know, for women who are thinking about wanting to be mothers in a biological way or being parents in that biological way. So there are, so yes, I think there are particular ways that a pace discrepancy can feel that much more tangly when it displays out that way. When it's, when the other way, when it's, when he's more urgent than she is, I think there is still some brain gap stuff where for her, what she may need to resolve is like, 
I've done enough, kind of if it's about marriage, he's more ready for marriage than she is. It oftentimes has to do with her wanting to have X number of experiences before she gets married. And so it's, you know, less a rejection of him and more like, but I always wanted to do this and this and this. And in my mind, I had done those things. Which is also socialization, right? Because there's this like, once a woman gets married, it's sort of like, okay, well, now that's like, you're losing independence. Then what if once you have kids, you're going to be the default primary parent, and then you're not going to be able to like, there's like socialization around men losing sexual diversity experiences upon you know, monogamous marriage. But for women, I think we're socialized to, and we see it around us as like, oh, but then I can't just like go to Peru for six weeks if I want to. I can't just, our options start to feel constrained. And that's the coolest part then when a couple can start to talk about it as a pace discrepancy, because she can, once she stops feeling that kind of constriction around, I shouldn't even want these things. So she can say what the things are that she wants. Then he may be in a spot to be like, are you kidding me? Freaking marry me and then go to Peru. Like, I don't, we get to make right. whatever kind of marriage we want to make. Like, do it. I don't, the last right. thing I want to do I is- mean, I had this with my partner where I was like, but what if I, w- I wanted to go live in Paris for six months? And he was like, okay, go live in Paris. I'll visit you when the kids are on vacation, which like, you know, may or may not be what I want to do, but- the sort of institution of marriage is presented as this like homogenous thing that means a certain thing. And then people aren't having those conversations, it sounds like. And I think that socialization you talked about, like for anybody listening to this who is the faster paced partner and feels is now feeling like shame about that, you've been socialized your whole life, if you're socialized as a woman, to equate getting married with being worthy, being chosen, feeling loved, being safe in life. I mean, it's just a huge amount of pressure. So like, of course, you're agitated about it. And I think that phrase you're using, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, like, ready for marriage is so interesting, because what does it mean to be ready? It's like, you may want it because you are, you know, you think it is going to be the relief from insecurity and anxiety and all these other things. But like, is that actually being, quote unquote, ready for marriage? Like, what kind of relationship are you really ready for in that state? That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's part of what can really like constrain a couple is if she's the faster paced partner, just as you're saying, she's got this like battle inside of her head. And she did not make up these rules of socialization. She was a good listener. This all got in. We are all socialized. And I I spend a lot of time when I'm working with a straight couple and it's playing out this way that we're talking about now, helping him try to even get his head around it, right? Because it is it is an actual, like he has to cross over that bridge of his own socialization to be humble and curious and to decenter himself to try to even understand the messages that she's been internalizing since she was like five years old. So you're right. And that shame and that kind of like her experience of shame about wanting what she wants then is silencing. And so often what he's carrying is something that he picked up from the culture, which is that quote unquote, ready to marry means he's earning X amount of dollars or he's reached X career milestones. And she might really be saying, I actually don't care. Like build with me, like let's marry now and let's build together. But there's a whole thing that has to happen where he has to kind of step out of how he's been socialized to see himself as a worthy partner apart from those financial milestones or career milestones. So there's sort of those are the socialization patterns and kind of heterosexual monogamous couples who are, you know, on a particular relationship escalator. What kind of patterns or what kind of factors do you see, you know, in other populations or across other kinds of couples? Are there do you see similar socialization patterns as well? Or how do you see those things play out? Mm -hmm. I do think that there I mean, I think there are still 
socialization patterns, but very often, I think just by nature of not having your bodies map so perfectly onto cis hetero narratives, there oftentimes is a, a kind of creativity and ease. I think oftentimes also people who don't fit into that narrow mold have just done more self-work. So they are more used to teasing apart what's mine and what's the culture's. Like that, that muscle is super like developed. And so I think that we just, I think we we then in our work have a bit more like the wind at our back because there's already been this capacity to like play creatively to understand, okay, this is holding a lot of importance to me. Why? Right? Like why? Right. Who does society get... say I'm supposed to be and who yeah. am I actually? And yeah. like, that makes sense. That work's mm-hmm. been done somewhat. You talk about social anchoring as part of what like informs the way that people are thinking about processing face discrepancies. And we've sort of touched on it, but I just wonder, is there any more to say about that phenomenon? Yeah. So the social anchoring is like, it's like an actual, you know, phenomenon that happens in the psychologists have talked about that we, we think that we live on these biological clocks, but we very much, this is the work of Bernice Newgarten many years ago, that we actually locate ourselves along social clocks. And so much of the social clock is we look to our left and our right at what our peers and our siblings are doing and the ages they were when they met those milestones. So it's less about our biology and more about our deep need to belong and our deep fear of not belonging and then the meaning we attach. And it's not, I don't know, there's any more comfortable to be ahead of the social clock than it is to be behind the social clock. You know what I mean? I think people who have whatever children, you know, quote unquote, very young or who marry, quote unquote, very young, I think they can have some feelings about that too. But certainly there is that like social shift that probably everyone listening can relate to is when you start to go to a lot of weddings, you know, it makes that that question feel a bit more urgent for you, even if you're somebody who doesn't have particularly strong feelings about that milestone. So that's that's what social anchoring is, is like, where am I vis-a-vis similarly situated folks? That's so important though, because I think, you know, you you mentioned like, if you are the person with ovaries and a uterus who's going to carry your pregnancy physically, then there's some time bound, right? Amount of time if that's possible. And it's easy to sort of take all of your urgency and unexamined stuff and just attach it to that, right? Because it, it, I think it can serve as this like, well, yeah, that's why I need to get going, right? That's why I'm so anxious. That's why like understanding that your sense of urgency might be partly biological, but also there's like your brain's evaluating a lot of different timelines. Like, yes, okay, there's a biological one, but it's on, right, that social timeline. And that's why it may be, you know, I think the social timeline thing is so interesting, too, because it helps us understand why, you know, in one community, 23 might be old to get married. And in another community that you would judge somebody for being 23 and unmarried and another community, you judge someone for being 23 and married. It would be weird that they got married that young. Right. And like, I mean, I think a lot of people haven't sat down and just written it out. Like, what are the ages that I think these things are supposed to happen? Like, why do I think that? What do I think about people who do them a little too early or a little too late or like, you know, what is the age that in my mind I've attached to where beforehand I was like, it's fine that X hasn't happened. I'm not that age yet. And then you're suddenly that age and then you're freaking out. But all none of that has really been chosen on purpose often. Well, that idea, I mean, I love where you're inviting your listener to go, which is you could make a timeline for yourself. And I think sometimes when we make these timelines, they are made in our minds as goals. I want to be X by this age and X by this. So no, do it differently. Just sit down and write out a timeline as a purely a thought experiment, as you reflecting on your own interior, just like do it kind of stream of consciousness, the ages that you think these things, quote unquote, should happen, not as a goal, not as a declaration, not as a map of your present and future, but purely as the ability to put it outside of you. And then 
use it as a line of self-inquiry. Where did this come from? What are the feelings that I have about the possibility of meeting this sooner versus later? And I think that's such a more helpful way to approach that because when it goes on paper as just my goals, and then I hand it to somebody else as like, this is what I want, <laughs> right. you know, then we're not Recipe creating for it. disaster. Yeah, yeah, we're not creating it together. We're not creating it together yeah. then. I often find that people are very surprised, especially when it comes to like numbers. It's like amount of money, age, whatever. It's like your brain picked some number at some point and was like, 37. I don't know. That's it. Or like $220,000. That's when I'm going to feel X, right? It's like you just, it's like sort of magical thinking. Your brain is like, I got to anchor my anxiety to something. So I'm going to like pick a thing. And then I'm like living my whole life around this. And I really can't explain it all when I stop to think about it. Why is it 37 and not 36 or not 38? Or why is it 200,000, not 195, not 203? So like getting that out of your head and looking at it. And I think also that gives you, it'd be interesting to do it at like, what did I used to think? Because I definitely remember being 14 and thinking, well, if I'm not married by 25, which is hilarious even at the time, like I was like barely (laughs) going to be out of college. Like that wasn't really normal in my socioeconomic educational world anyway, to be like married at 25. So to see how that's like changed over time. I mean, there's so many milestones that I look back from here and I'm like, I was like, no big deal. That like, right, that didn't happen on that schedule that I thought I needed to be on. But again, just to like zoom out for a moment, like I've been teaching, I mentioned the marriage one-on-one class. So this spring, it'll be the 24th year that I've been teaching it. And so the first lecture is like a 10,000 foot view of the world of relationships. Well, 24 years ago, the age of entry into marriage was like 22 for women and 24 for men. So in 24 years, which like, I mean, I'm a little on the older side now, but still, and like like in the grand scheme of things, 24 years is not that long of a time. So we've gone from 22 and 24 to like 27 and 29. That's a really, really big collective shift here in the US in a very short amount of time. So anybody who's heads are spinning around these shoulds and when should I and attachment to numbers, like that's happening because especially around marriage milestones, like it is, we're undergoing significant cultural shifts very, very quickly. So everyone's a little confused. And when things feel ambiguous, what do we do? We reach for a number or something that feels like it's sure, you know? Yeah. So let's keep on this sort of track of talking about like concrete ways to start working with this stuff. So I know you have some suggestions of questions that the faster paced partner can kind of ask themselves or ask their partner to try to, what do you see as effective to sort of open up communication around these like pace discrepancies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big thing, so what happens when there's a pace discrepancy is what oftentimes happens for couples is there's polarization. So the more the faster paced partner is saying things like, you know, we really should, or my friends are, or if you love me, you would. Not that they're saying directly, if you love me, you would, but that kind of like, don't you see, and it'll be fine. The more they're sort of pulling, and I'm doing this like pulling gesture with my hand yeah. this way, <laughs> the more the slower pace partner is going to feel like, the, you know, my hesitation isn't being validated. My concerns aren't being validated. My perspective isn't being seen. And so then they kind of dig in and are trying to build the opposite case of why we aren't ready. And look at this. And last week we had that fight. Don't you remember that fight? And the faster paced one is like, but we had that fight because I don't feel validated. So then it becomes a polarization. And so that pace discrepancy is an attempt to get out of that and say, the two of us need to sit alongside each other and put the problem in front of us. We have a discrepancy. We aren't ready for the same thing at the same time. And my gosh, on what planet 
do we think that a mark of true love is, you know, I think maybe it comes from the same line of thinking that says that like the mark of good sex is people who are simultaneously having orgasms. They arrive in the same place at the same time. Wait, that's so you know? good because I think most people listening, <laughs> most people listening to this would agree that simultaneous orgasm is a ridiculous thing to hang good sex on. But many fewer of them would agree that like simultaneous pacing is not a good thing to hang it on. But I think that's so important, right? Like what is your a thought like sort of in the terms of the way we I often talk on the podcast is like a version of that question would be like, what are you making it mean yes. that you and your partner are not in the same place on this pace, right? Like you have a story about that meaning and what it means about you or them or you guys as a couple or whatever. And you have to get that story out or else – you're just trying to act to counteract the story and convince yourself of the opposite, and you don't even know what the story is. Exactly. And I think the faster-paced person oftentimes has a very hard time understanding that the slower-paced partner also has a story and also has pain. It is not easy being the slower-paced partner because what you are doing day after day is looking in your partner's eyes and seeing that you are freaking disappointing to them. You are not giving them the thing you need. And that runs counter to what it means to be a partner, right? Like, I want to give you what you need, and I'm fully aware that I am not ready or I have this resistance. And so the slower-paced partner is not having an easy time. And I think that can be easy to miss, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you see that, I think, also in couples where one person is, like, sort of the critical taskmaster and the other person is, like, never living up to their expectations. You know, I think, like, the person who's doing the criticizing is really only aware of their suffering and the actually person who's quote unquote not living up is aware of both people. So like is aware of that kind of carrying that like disappointment and that, you know, shame of not being able to like whatever it is, remember to pick their socks up or whatever the thing is that like they're having a hard time doing. A hundred percent. So I love that. Right. Like I would also imagine this is just speculation, but the faster paced partner is probably also often someone who's very like goal oriented and I want to get to this thing. I'm like, they're like very used to sort of being like, I set a project, I set a goal, I mm-hmm. achieve it, let's go. And it's like, <laughs> why isn't my teammate doing their part of the joint project? Like they're slowing down the goal. And that's why all of that like self-reflection we've been talking about of like, why do you even want this goal? No one's saying you shouldn't want it, but like you want to look at why and and sort of tease some of that apart, right? Not only why do you want it, but why is it so urgent? Why does it have to happen right now on your timeline? And what I oftentimes am really challenging the faster paced partner to see is, yes, there's a commitment milestone that you haven't met, but let's look at all the other ways in which the two of you are deepening into commitment, like sort of looking at the movie instead of the snapshot. Because if all you do is look at this one snapshot of, I don't have a ring on my finger to make it easy, it can be really easy then to miss all of the really beautiful ways that your slower paced partner is actually becoming a we with you, that the two of you are really building together. You've done whatever. You're you're splitting finances in a way. You have a pet together. You're traveling together. You are in therapy together. You're like, what are the ways that you are kind of deepening into commitment even as, even as this, you know, this very kind of obvious concrete one, you know, you're still not there yet. So I think that's part of it too, is like the thing starts to feel static. I don't have this thing I want. It can yeah, like feel tunnel static. blindness. It's yeah. like there's nobody else on this train car. There's only that one thing I need to get to. We've been talking about sort of like these big picture things like whatever, moving in, getting married, opening up your relationship, blah, blah, blah. But what you're talking about, it seems to me would be equally exactly like maybe you're in early dating and like you want to text every day and your partner is like, I don't really like to text or I don't want to have to text every day. That feels like an obligation to me. And I, you know, I mean, I think those pace discrepancies can show up so early, especially when you're dealing with a 
cis hetero relationship where the woman has that socialization and has like a lot of anxiety around dating and getting to, it's like, okay, we got the first date, then to the second date. Then like, are we going to become exclusive? Then are we going to, I would think this can show from the beginning. So what I really love about this whole conversation is seeing something that some people might look at and be like, oh man, this is a huge problem. It means we're not compatible. It's a stage four hurricane. It's like a stage one. Like it's a problem, sure, that you need to talk about, but it's like a thing that can be bridged as opposed to, it feels like it's like a pace discrepancy is a thing that people think of as zero sum. It's like, either we're doing the thing or we're not doing the thing. Either you're going to get on board or you're not, as opposed to like, we're going to build a bridge. Yeah. Yes. And it together. feels, that's right. It feels like a, it feels diagnostic. It feels like, uh-oh, this is a red flag. We're doomed. Yeah. Very often, just, I want to go back for a moment to the slower, the psychology of the slower paced partner, because, you know, with, with everything, when we're talking about the meaning and like surfacing the deeper stories, I'm of course, always thinking about family of origin, wounds and family of origin roles and family of origin patterns that we are going to activate in each other 100 times out of 100. And so that slower paced partner, very often what they're doing is they're playing out an old family of origin dynamic, which is I've got two stances. I am separate from you or I am subjugated to you. Like I either do it my way and I feel my own selfhood or I do it your way and I am subjugated and I'm at risk of being, you know, mistreated by you. And so a lot of the healing for that slower paced partner is around developing a sense of pride and being relational, a sense of pride. When I stretch so that my partner feels loved by me and safe with me, that stretch is not an abandonment of myself or a subjugation of myself. It is a sign of my own capacity to really like be caring and nurturing and collaborating with somebody who's not going to then use it against me. So that's oftentimes a deeper healing for the slower paced partner. I'm just thinking about how I'm both those people. And no wonder my partner was like, I'm good. This is like a feral cat. I'm just going to let her come to me <laughs> when she's ready. Put like a little dish of milk outside and see what happens. Um, <laughs> the little dish of milk. <laughs> just like a little. Yeah, he was. We had a very funny when we he decided he needed to like reverse psychology me somehow which was not the best approach. But so he was like, he basically was like, I think I want to, yeah, I think we should live together. So what I'm going to tell her is that I love living alone so she doesn't feel pressured. And then I, of course, was like, what are you talking about? You're always over here. You hate being alone. You're the one who wanted to move in together. What are you doing? Like, oh, he's good. He's but, very clever. He's very clever. It was very, yeah, I was mm. like, Let's not, don't be clever. Just, but <laughs> right, the reason we got to where we are is we are able to like talk and work through those things. So I, th I think just the like, we were talking before we started recording about how, that what's so great about this conversation is it feels like the total antidote to what you see on like most Instagram posts, which is sort of, you know, if somebody doesn't see your worth and want to do what you want immediately, then like get rid of them, right? And it's always tricky because of course women at the same time are socialized to like settle in relationships they don't want to be in and rationalize away everything. And right. So it's all your own discernment you have to build up over time. And like there is not a really easy answer, but I think as you're talking about the less fast partner, I'm also just thinking about like, you know, things that the fast paced partner may not even think about. Like I can imagine that certain forms of neurodiversity would make that harder. Like if you have some demand avoidance, then somebody constantly being like, I want to get married. I want to get married. What's wrong with you? Why won't you do this? Is like going to set all that off. And so it feels like a really interesting question to ask yourself, whichever partner you are would be like, in terms of like more concrete things people can work on would be like, what is the gift that my partner is giving to me in this relationship? <laughs> with their pace. 
right? Like if you're the faster pace one, like what's the gift of the slower pace here or vice versa? If you're the slower pace one, like what's the gift that the faster paced one is giving me here? Totally. I love that. No matter what stage of a relationship or what moment of a relationship you are experiencing a pace discrepancy, a pace discrepancy gives you a chance to work on something that is just an essential relational skill, which is like, what is the opportunity here? What is the way in which I can grow as an individual? This is the heart of you know I call relational self-awareness, right? Like, what do I have to learn about myself in this moment with my partner? And it probably is not the first time I've felt this way. It, the reason I'm experiencing this in the tender way that I am probably has to do with something from my past. So can this be a chance to care for that younger part of me as I face this, you know, this challenge and perhaps do it differently, perhaps resource myself differently now than I could have back then. But you're right. I mean, to see it as a growth opportunity rather than a crisis, even just that mindset shift opens up eight new possibilities for the conversation versus if it's a crisis, there's urgency. And when we're urgent, we really are compromised in our ability to toggle between our perspective and the other's perspective. And this is one that really does demand that toggling. Like one of the questions that I want people to ask is like, what do I need to remember about my partner when we're having this conversation? Like, what's the thing that I need to keep in mind about who they are as a person to kind of get out of that tunnel vision, you know? I think this also would help people understand each other's socialization better. And like, I think if you're in that cis-hetero partnership that I don't think men really understand like that level to which women have been socialized to believe that their entire worth and value depends on getting to the white dress and walking down the aisle. So it feels like this approach of like, this is just like any other thing in our relationship that we need to resolve and we need to talk about it and share our perspectives would also help. It helps uncover like the socialization that's impacting the way you show up in the relationship, like in all areas so that you can come close together. So good. So if people want to read more of your brilliant wisdom or hear more, where can they find you? So I have a weekly podcast called Reimagining Love, and we did a whole episode about pace discrepancies a little while ago, so they can look for that. And that comes with a worksheet because I am super nerdy. I love making a worksheet. <laughs> You're so speaking my listeners' love languages. Oh, that. yes. I love – those are my people. All the people, worksheets. Uh-huh, people who love worksheets are my people. <laughs> so that's that's a wonderful you know place to go. I have books, and my newest book is called Love Every Day which is a daily kind of daily conversation starters and little reflections, pieces of wisdom about relationships. Oh, yeah, my website, dralexandrosolomon.com has blogs and online courses and all of the things. So good. Do not underestimate the power of having a little book of questions and prompts to ask your partner or ask yourself. Those stuff are, my partner and I keep a pack of those in the car and we just pull them when we're driving and like ask each other the questions. I think people think that somehow it's like planning for sex. People think that you're just supposed to spontaneously have big, deep discussions. And unless you are a coach or a therapist, this is not what you do all day. So it's totally normal and helpful to like have some prompts, have some ideas. So good. So go order the book. We'll put all this in the show notes, of course, as well. Thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. It was wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much. If you're loving what you're learning on the podcast, you have got to come check out the Feminist Self-Help Society. It's our newly revamped community and classroom where you get individual help to better apply these concepts to your life, along with a library of next-level, blow-your-mind coaching tools and concepts that I just can't fit in a podcast episode. 
It's also where you can hang out, get coached, and nerd out about all things thought work and feminist mindset with other podcast listeners just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life, I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash society. I can't wait to see you there.